to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series has been accredited for continuing medical education credit. The American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. Information about credit claiming for this and other episodes can be found at education.aaai.org forward slash podcasts. Credit claiming will be available for one year from the episode's original release date. We also encourage all listeners to visit the website to see additional resources and to provide feedback. We are pleased to welcome William Silvers, who will discuss the hot topics surrounding marijuana and how it affects asthma and allergic conditions. Dr. Silvers is a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine and has over 30 years of clinical experience as an allergist in private practice in Denver, Colorado. Dr. Silvers has been an active member of the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology and served as a founding member and former chair of the original Complementary Alternative Medicine Committee. Dr. Silvers has led a distinguished career devoted to advocacy and bioethics with clinical interests and publications related to personalized integrative allergy care and most recently, his experiences with allergic reactions to marijuana. Neither Dr. Silvers nor I have any relevant relationships to disclose. Dr. Silvers, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me and for uh, approaching this topic. Uh, And I think it's a a fascinating topic. And uh, as you know, this tends to generate a lot of interest particularly given the widespread adoption of complementary and alternative medicine approaches to treating various medical conditions. Before we discuss specifics related to marijuana, can you describe how the terms complementary medicine, alternative medicine, and integrative medicine differ from one another? David, thank you. I think that the semantics are important. CAM, or complementary alternative medicine, encompasses uh, complementary uh, modalities that complement traditional medicine that are used in addition to the uh, the orthodox treatments. Uh, for example, uh, yoga-type breathing for asthma, u- using eucalyptus in a, a steam shower, uh, in addition to the environmental uh, medications uh, that we may recommend. While alternative medicine are those modalities that are used in place of traditional medicine, for example, acupuncture, uh, uh, chiropractic for asthma, homeopathic medicines, rather than the pharmaceutical medications that have been tested for safety and efficacy. So I relate to the approach of an integrative medicine, which is those modalities that have evidence bases integrated 
with the time-tested treatments for which we have the studies. Uh, as an example, uh, probiotics that we give now uh, in pregnancy and vitamin D supplementation potentially, uh, because after enough evidence for safety and efficacy is accumulated, then these complementary modalities can transition into mainstream therapy. So an integrative approach takes into consideration the environment, the nutrition, the diet, exercise, sleep, and stress management for the patient, in addition to then discussing the medicines, immunotherapy uh, that the patients uh, may need. Um, and I think that medical cannabis, when well-studied, can be considered at presently a complementary modality for certain conditions. We're starting to see it used now in uh, seizure disorders, movement disorders, cancer, pain, um, HIV, AIDS. But we need more research to know exactly how to administer, how much, what adverse effects and interactions it may have. So medical cannabis needs to be placed into the uh, our, our armamentarium, you know, after we have addressed the traditional approaches. In addition to that, uh, with, uh, with with due consideration, we can consider it a complementary approach presently because it does have. Uh, certain evidence that's being accumulated for certain conditions, and that's why you have certain legal indications in states that have medical marijuana legalized, um, but it's not yet in our uh, in our pharmacopoeia and our uh, uh, you know standard approach. Well, that's a great introduction. And do you find that there's a lot of confusion or, or misuse of the terms complementary and alternative medicine from the patients that you? discussed with or even in media reports that you that you read about? Oh, very much. And so that's why as patients who have chronic illness, chronic sinusitis, chronic asthma, and they've been on the, uh, the, the usual medications and they become more um, desperate in search for uh, something that will help them, uh, will go to other practitioners, alternative practitioners, that may be using uh, modalities that have no substantiation. And so that's why I think that uh, it's important for we as allergists with our patients, for primary physicians, to be open about a patient's personality, uh, a patient's needs, and uh, and address them in the context that the patient will be cared for well with what the tools that we have. And then if they wish to explore beyond that, that they know what they're getting into, they know what techniques there are, and that they feel they can come back to their allergist, their, uh, their primary physician with where they have been exploring. Because all too often, Patients will go out and not tell their primary doc. They'll be ashamed to discuss that they have been to uh, wherever they've been. 
and they've had blood tests for food allergies, for example, that uh, really have no established clinical relevance. And so uh, we know from previous work that we've done, quite frankly, that two-thirds of our patients in the allergist's office would like to address complementary approaches within the traditional model rather than having to go outside of it. So that's why I think that every good physician practices in a holistic fashion, but those who practice so-called holistic medicine, you have to be very careful about. I'm so glad that you you brought up that important aspect of our patients. We know that they are uh, investigating and interested in these complementary therapies, but we also know that our you know many physicians are are ill-equipped to really discuss them. And along those lines, can you provide some talking points for our colleagues, uh, specifically when patients ask about complementary approaches to treating their allergic conditions? And do you have any take-home messages surrounding the quality and amount of evidence that's either for or against? I think a few things. Uh, Number one, we need to be open and non-judgmental when caring for our patients. Uh, And uh, number two, we need to be able to know the resources that are available to us in terms of what complementary or alternative um, things the patients may be uh, thinking about or doing. So, for example, the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, has an institute previously called uh, the National Center for Complementary Alternative Medicine, which is now called the National Institutes of Complementary Integrative Health. Uh, that we can, you, one can search on their website and uh, and have patient-derived information, uh, and so allergists can address that also as to what the references, the evidence basis is. In addition, we have certain well-vetted resources such as the Natural Medicines Comprehensive Database, uh, Natural Medicines, which uh, is provided by the pharmacist's newsletter. It's very well uh, uh, a resource. And in fact, the, the Academy uh, the American Academy of Allergy as Immunology, for which we're doing this now, provides this resource as a, a benefit to its membership, um, which I hope the membership will uh, take advantage of because it will uh, uh, be able to educate us as to what supplements um, people are using, uh, what the adverse uh, uh, reactions may be, and what the interactions may be with uh traditional medications. We, in fact, wrote a paper um, in the uh, Annals of Allergy, Asthma and Clinical Immunology in 2014 on an integrative approach to allergy and asthma using complementary alternative medicine. Um, Galen Marshall uh, is the editor, and he's interested in the stress uh, component of, uh, of allergic disease. What we really um, came up with is that lifestyle is important. Patients' diet, uh, not only avoidance of highly processed foods, et cetera, but enhancement of fruits and vegetables and cold water fish like salmon um, are uh, are important uh, to address. 
biologically based uh, therapies like herbs, vitamins, minerals, supplements um, can be uh, can be resourced. You know, and there's a value to exercise, uh, and there's a important uh, role of stress management because uh, even meditation has been shown in one of the studies that Galen Marshall uh, was involved with in decreasing skin test reactivity, therefore potentially decreasing allergic reactivity. So I think that allergists, in addition to what we traditionally recommend in terms of environmental precautions, medications, allergy immunotherapy, potentially uh, allergy injections, allergy shots, the biologic therapies that are emerging. I think we need to be um, very uh, uh, attentive to the art as well as the science of, uh, of our patient care and, uh, and address the patient with uh, mind, body, and spirit, and uh, even in the, in, in the best of the scientific hands. Well, that's a, there's a lot to unpack there, and that's wonderful. And we're going to make sure that we provide the links to those resources that you mentioned on the um, on the website. And I think we're going to have to have you back on if you're willing to really d- take a deep dive into all these issues, because there's a lot of great information there. Uh, but alas, uh, let's get back to the topic at hand. And um, as you know, you live in Colorado, uh, which is one of the first two states to legalize recreational use of cannabis in 2012. Can you give our listeners uh, some information about the current state of marijuana legalization in the United States? Be happy to. It's interesting. Uh, uh, Medical marijuana is now legal in 33 states, and recreational marijuana is now legal in 10 states, plus the District of Columbia. Um, California was the first state with medical uh, marijuana. Colorado was uh, first out of the gates uh, with recreational marijuana legalization, same time as uh, the state of Washington um, legalized it by uh, by ballot. Uh, but Colorado um, was able to um, put it into uh, into effect um, in 2014, and uh, different states have. Uh, various indications for medical marijuana uh, for different conditions. Uh, in, in Colorado, for example, the indications, the legal indications to have a medical marijuana license are cancer, glaucoma, HIV or AIDS, uh, cachexia or a wasting syndrome, persistent muscle spasms, seizures, uh, severe nausea, severe pain, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and more recently uh, added on an autism spectrum disorder we actually found in Colorado when it was first uh, legalized uh, that uh, we had a lot of patients, uh, families, especially with uh, seizure disorders uh, coming in, moving to the state so they could have uh, easier access to uh, the availability of, uh, of recreational marijuana. And variously in other states, we have indications for where there has been evidence for Parkinson's, inflammatory bowel disease, multiple sclerosis, ALS, 
um, et cetera. It's been used in the elderly and the senior population because they have the tremulousness, the movement disorders, depression. And they found that the elderly with small doses of uh, both inhaled and, and, uh, and oral um, do better. <laughs> so uh, with more legalization, we know that uh, more research needs to be, uh, to be done. And since it's a, still a class one uh, FDA um, uh, federally, therefore, illegal drug. Um, this needs to, to change to, uh, to really be able to do the population research we need to do. Have you always been interested in marijuana, or did it really grow after legalization in the state where you reside? Well, I can tell you, my personal experience and my involvement with it um, began when I started seeing patients in the office when it was uh, legalized medically in 2010 uh, in Colorado. And then we saw a number of patients that, especially uh, those who were working in the industry, who were the growers, the bud tenders, uh, those who had exposure. Um, and we saw classic allergic reactivity. I mean, uh, asthma, allergic rhinitis, and especially a lot of dermatitis and uh, contact urticaria. But then when it was legalized recreationally, or what's now called adult use, um, then I saw a lot more patients uh, coming to the practice, and as did uh, the other allergists in Colorado. Um, and I, but I think that some people, you know, a lot of, of patients are reluctant to talk about it because it's uh, stigmatized and uh, was illegal. And I think a number of docs are not comfortable in uh, asking about it and dealing with it. So that's why I uh, started to pay more attention to it. And then, quite frankly, in 2015, there was a paper that came out in the Annals, a review article by uh, uh, Thad Ocampo, who was a fellow at uh, Wilford Hall Air Force Base in their fellowship program and his research project. He did a a paper, uh, uh, Cannabis Sativa, the Unusual Weed. It was a very highly uh, access reference paper. And so uh, they uh, asked for there to be a commentary on it, and a number of people were reluctant to give commentary. And I said that I have a number, I was on the Board of Regents at that time, I said I have a number of patients who have had reactions, and these are the kinds of reactions. And, you know, you get your five minutes of uh, Andy Warhol fame. And then uh, there was a American Thoracic Society meeting in Colorado uh, that had, a, for the first time, a session on um, cannabis respiratory reactions. And uh, Don Tashkin from UCLA, who's kind of the grandfather of uh, uh, allergy pulmonary uh, reactions to, uh, to cannabis, um, was speaking. And uh, and then the Colorado uh, law required that there be some tax money devoted to research. It was the first time in the world that we know of that there was government-sponsored research. So a number of researchers in uh, uh, the university applied for grants, and they had to uh, present their uh, results publicly. And uh, so there was an even a... Uh, uh, presentation at National Jewish uh, Hospital, National Jewish Health, um, 
by these researchers, and I happened to have been the only allergist in the audience then, uh, because I had been asked to give a talk elsewhere. And so it led to, I said, somebody needs to lead the charge here. And so uh, I felt that um, being a clinical professor at the University of Colorado and being in practice for a long time, I felt that uh, I had a track record that I could speak out on this. And that's how I got involved with it. And since then now, we have, uh, just in the last year, we've now put together a cannabis allergy discussion group at uh, the academy and the college, part of the integrative medicine committees, um, whereby a number of uh, people who were interested, the United States, Canada, and also Europe at the last academy meeting, uh, we had about 35 people that uh, were on roundtable discussions. So everybody's needing to pay attention to it now. Well, certainly, especially as you mentioned with the widespread legalization in various um, forms and things like that. But that, thank you for the fascinating historical background, and it's it, it's truly interesting to see how you've been involved and in, and also how this has gained attention from the professional organizations and at the meetings and things like that. Um, you you've mentioned a couple of different terms, and I wonder if we can pause for a second and have you go back and really describe the differences between terms such as cannabis. Marijuana, and I'm going to throw in CBD oil, uh, which is quite popular these days. But can you describe how those are the same and/or different? Yes, actually, <clears throat> there's a lot of confusion in, uh, in in the people who are working with it. But basically, I like to view it as um, medical cannabis uh, when it's used for a medical purpose, um, and I can tell you that. Um, hemp and marijuana are simply broad classifications of cannabis, the cannabis sativa, the cannabis indica plants that uh, were adopted into our culture. Hemp is a term used to classify varieties of cannabis that contain less than 0.3% uh, THC, delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, uh, which is the, the psychotropic, the one that causes you the high. Um, marijuana is a term used to classify varieties of cannabis that contain more than 0.3% THC by dry weight and can induce the, uh, the euphoric effects on the user. So um, I like to use the term medical cannabis because that's really what it is and it has been. Uh, marijuana was a term used to describe the influx of this plant from Mexico in the early 1900s, mid-1900s, with a negative uh, stigmatization connotation by the government especially when they um, made it illegal. Uh, it's really a, the cannabis plant used medically or recreationally, and hemp-derived CBD is the term used when the THC content is less than 0.3%. So that's the uh, important, uh, you know, semantic description, I think. So CBD oil should not give anybody the euphoric high that they would get from consuming marijuana and other forms. Is that correct? Exactly right. Um, the, uh, the providing it was produced by reliable uh, growers, you know, distributors, etc. CBD itself, you know, 
uh, is purported to have an anti-inflammatory and immunologic effect. Um, the degree of which it has this effect without the THC uh, is subject to question because a lot of the studies uh, are showing that it's a THC-CBD uh, relationship. Mind you, the cannabis plant has uh, over you know, 60 um, cannabinoids in it, CBD, CRG, CBN, etc. It's the THC that uh, is the, the psychoactive one, is the one that causes the high. Uh, and then, then it's other parts of the plant also, the flavonoids, the terpenes that may be playing a role. So there are some researchers who are working with um, um, with cannabinoids in terms of the receptors, the CB1, CB2 receptors in the endocannabinoid system. We have an endogenous uh, cannabinoid production. And there are others uh, who are plant biologists who feel that it's really the complex of the whole plant um, with the THC, the CBD, and all of the other cannabinoids and terpenes and flavonoids that, that make a difference. So that may be a long answer, but uh, uh, the science of it and the psychopharmacology of it uh, and the medical effects of it, because there may be different strains that are valuable for different disease processes. So that's all still needing to be worked out. We know, though, that patients improve, or at least a lot of patients improve with the specific disease processes, such as I had mentioned, where a lot of states have different, you know, um, you know, legal uh, indications for it. So it's a patient-driven sort of a, uh, of a, a need for the for further research. Well, it, I that's there's a lot to also unpack there as well, and it it is complicated. And as you mentioned, multiple different levels to it. Um, I can see why where this would be rife for confusion among patients and providers, uh, as well as an area that's really rich where people can take advantage and apply their own pseudoscientific spin and things along those lines. Um, so uh, thank you for that introduction. Now, we're going to talk in a second about IgE-mediated hypersensitivity reactions to marijuana and derivatives. Um, but before we get there, can we talk in a more general sense about some of the health risks that can occur for somebody who has asthma, uh, for instance, whether if they directly inhale marijuana, uh, what can happen to them? A lot. <laughs> Potentially a lot. And I'll tell you, it's, a, it's been a subject that uh, the allergy and the pulmonary community uh, uh, has, been, uh, has been aware of for a number of years. Uh, just by background, marijuana and, or cannabis, and we'll use those terms kind of interchangeably, uh, and hemp-derived CBD, uh, we might use that term specifically, uh, can be consumed by several routes of administration, smoking, vaping, oils, topicals, capsules. They're putting, um, especially CBD, since it's now become legal, uh, in everything. And it's not being well tested in a lot of in, in food products, for example. Mm. Uh, and the positive and the adverse reactions can be different depending upon how it's consumed. We know respiratory-wise that um, smoking marijuana 
can cause a chronic bronchitis with an irritant cough reaction and sputum production. Um, and you can have wheezing with it. We know that the same carcinogens are seen in marijuana as in tobacco smoke. Uh, and we see pre-malignant lesions in the airways. But interestingly, there's no substantiation of lung cancer. Um, in fact, there may be an anti-tumorogenic effect of marijuana, which is why it's being used in a number of cases with cancer, in addition to its uh, um, treatment for the nausea, vomiting that can be seen with the, with the chemotherapy. By the same token, Interestingly, there's no solid evidence for emphysema or, C, or, or COPD. So um, marijuana, you know, is an acute bronchodilator, and it also has a relaxation, generalized anti-anxiety effect. So uh, some asthmatics may feel an improvement with uh, uh, with marijuana, you know, depending upon the method of consumption, um, but interestingly, heavy use can cause airflow obstruction, so it's not generally recommended for asthma. Um, and, uh, and while I say that, as you know, every patient is different. Uh, it's the, heter the heterogeneity, the difference in patients' uh, um, presentations. And so we need to pay attention to the individual patient, but uh, uh, there are adverse uh, health effects, allergy, respiratory-wise, et cetera. Interestingly, I can tell you, um, you know, inhaling cannabis, ha cannabis has a much faster onset of action than other roots. Um, edibles have a slower onset of action, et cetera. But inhaled, while there are now computerized meter dose inhalers that are being developed, you know, to give you a certain a number of milligrams of uh, of cannabis, uh, um, they call it uh, uh, titrating or dosing. Um, the um, the effects and the adverse effects uh, are such that they still need to be. It still needs to be worked out. And to be clear, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, we are not advocating that any patient with asthma um, self-medicate uh, with the use of marijuana for the purpose of improving their asthma. Uh, would you agree with that? I agree with that totally. Um, but I will also say that not to be surprised if some patients come in and they say that uh, when they inhale marijuana, they feel better. Why? Because we know that it's a immediate bronchodilator, um, and we know that it has a, uh, an anti-anxiety or a relaxation effect, uh, so people may feel better with, uh, uh, with their asthma, but it's not something that we um, you know, can recommend because we really need to study it, and that's why I bring up the heterogeneity of patients and maybe just individual patients may have a greater response um, you know, than others. I'll say this. I have been involved recently with uh, Joanna Zeiger, who's an Olympian, an Iron Woman champion, uh, lives now in Boulder, Colorado. She's actually the daughter of Robert Zeiger, one of our uh, colleagues who's an eminent MD-PhD um, allergist uh, in Southern California. And Joanna 
who uh, ran in the first uh, uh, triathlon in the Sydney Olympics and came in fourth, actually. Had an accident, a biking accident, pain, uh, which was not well controlled with uh, with the conventional medications. And you know we have this whole opioid epidemic um, that... Uh, we as a society and the government is trying to address now. And, you know, there's a thought that cannabis may be a step down, that it may be um, one of the approaches to getting down off the opioids. But in Joanna's case, as an example, her personal case, and she, in fact, has started <clears throat> this group called Canna Research Group, um, www.cannaresearchgroup.net, which uh, is trying to do observational studies for uh, improvement, adverse effects of medical cannabis with her father, and I'm involved with them also. And she has spoken at the Academy meeting, for example, last year on uh, exercise-induced bronchospasm in elite athletes. And what she has said is that she cannot smoke it in any capacity um, because it's a huge irritant. But there are some vape pens that she can use without in incident, she has to know how to regulate how deeply she inhales and, and you know, why vape at all when you have asthma? But the question is, with chronic pain, sometimes you need a quick onset of action and can't wait for the 45 to 60 minutes for an edible to kick in. So sometimes, and there are a number of athletes in Boulder, actually, uh, with which I'm familiar, that will sometimes take uh, an edible and a vape so they get the immediate uh, relief from the vape, uh, and then uh, over time, in an hour, the edible will kick in and uh, and, and wears off longer. So there's an evolving um, use for it uh, medically. And uh, as I think we get more, as pharma meets weed, as the pharmaceutical industry uh, addresses uh, medical cannabis, we're going to be uh, seeing um, uh, hopefully more effect with less adverse effects. But as allergists and, and pulmonologists, we need to pay attention to it a lot. And to go back to what you just mentioned, do we have actual evidence yet that demonstrates one form of inhalation is more risky or safer compared to another? No. And I can say this, that as much as, uh, as an example, e-cigarettes or the vapes are being touted as uh, uh, healthy, there's nothing healthy about them. They may be a healthier alternative than smoking cigarettes, as an example, um, a healthier alternative, but there's nothing safe about them. And in fact, the concentration of the uh, oils, the cannabis in them may be greater than that of, uh, of just uh, uh, you know, smoking uh, a joint, let's say, uh, or a pipe. But uh, there's been no, uh, there have been no studies that I'm aware of uh, that show uh, um, only anecdotes. And as they say, the, the plural of anecdote is anecdotes. It's not evidence. So uh, patients, you know, I need to try and see what works. If, if there's a need, especially if there's a patient with pain that has asthma and that has found that cannabis is helpful for the pain and they need immediate onset, perhaps there's a role for using uh, a vape that they can tolerate, and I'm not advocating it necessarily, um, other than in states where it's medically legal, perhaps. Um, and um, 
and and to and to and to see. But there's also a concept, not to get too detailed, of microdosing, of using because now we can measure the number of milligrams that uh, cannabis is being produced in flour, in vape, in oil, etc. To microdose to what they call start low and increase slow to where you take a you know a, a little bit in whatever fashion uh, vaping edible oil yeah etc and just increase slowly to see what your therapeutic effect is so that you don't get a uh, a lot of side effects for example you want to have an effect for pain relief but you don't want to have the high so and you find that you need a little THC you know in addition to the CBD to really have the effect quite frankly a study that had been done by Joanna Zeiger uh, and the Canna Research Group in terms of elite athletes with uh, with pain uh, showed that uh, that it's the combination of uh, THC and CBD that makes the that makes the biggest difference not the CBD by itself so there's a lot that we ha- have learned and there's a, even more that we really still need to learn and, and um, I think you really summarize this quite well, but at, at this point in time, and we're recording this and we'll launch it in the summer of 2019, we it seems like we're just lacking in evidence that can really help healthcare providers determine the safest uh, form and the amount that patients should be using, um, while at the same time, we want to encourage open conversations between medical providers and patients in regards to the use of these products, because we know that they are... Uh, being widely consumed. So well said. Well okay. said. Well, thanks. Um, so let's let's move on to the um, allergic reactions because that, that's something that you've really been one of the pioneers in describing. So let's go back to that. And can you describe the types of allergic reactions that can occur to marijuana and um, how that might differ from symptoms that occur with other forms of exposure, for instance? Yeah. Well, as I had said. Um, you know, we have to remember that uh, marijuana cannabis is a weed. And just like other weeds or even just like other pollens, trees, grass, weeds can cause similar reactions uh, upon exposure. And uh, whereas I uh, saw a few patients from 2010 to 2014 when medical marijuana was uh, legalized, after 2014 with uh, recreational marijuana legalized, um, we saw a lot more. Uh, and, di- and different presentations. Uh, so I had written that up. Uh, Colorado allergists' experience with marijuana legalization, where we saw a lot, those, especially those working in the industry and having a lot of contact uh, with their skin, you know, dermatitis, hives, itching, um, and nasal allergic rhinitis. And you know, if you have it, in, if you're growing plants in your home, you know, it may uh, be causing you the difficulties, not just uh, elsewhere. Uh, lungs, asthma, cough, uh, and there's reported uh, anaphylaxis uh, on ingestion of hemp and uh, and hemp seed. Although I personally have not seen any uh, uh, anaphylaxis with uh, with in- ingestion. I will say this for uh, for the uh, the allergy community that um, we did a study in our office that we reported in 2017, actually, the spectrum and prevalence of uh, reactions to marijuana in a Colorado allergy practice. I can just speak to our own practice. That showed, and this is what's really important for the allergists to be aware of, that of our patients 
that had no previous exposure at all, had never smoked marijuana, et cetera, only 12% of them had any kind of an adverse reaction upon passive exposure. Of our patients who had previously smoked marijuana, but not presently, 26% of them had some kind of adverse reaction. But of our patients, and these are still small numbers, just about 130 patients, of our patients that continued to use marijuana, half of them, 50% of them, had experienced an adverse reaction. So we know that the more exposure, the more reactions. So we as allergists need to advise our uh, allergic patients to be more careful than, uh, than the general population. And it may not be just due to the pollen of the protein. It may be due to other factors in the production, the mold, like aspergillus, the pesticides that, uh, uh, that's why you have to be very careful about who the, uh, the providers, the growers are. Uh, there may be dust mite in there. I mean, so that's, uh, it's something that we as allergists really need to, uh, uh, pay attention to. That's just so fascinating to me. Um, now, in addition to taking a detailed clinical history of the um, typical symptoms that would occur with an IgE reaction, as you mentioned, highs in dermatitis, coughing, rhinitis, upper lower respiratory symptoms, um, and with exposure, is there a skin or a blood test that allergists can use to help confirm whether somebody has marijuana allergy? Not commercially available. Um, I think the most important is the history. Just like with any other uh, uh, evaluation, a non-judgmental history of the patient's uh, exposure and usage. And quite frankly, not just personal usage, uh, but maybe even secondary, uh, secondhand smoke, as, uh, as, as you may be interested in, um, that... Uh, that other people smoking in the vicinity, uh, and so you have passive inhalation just like you have with cigarettes. In fact, the National Jewish Nathan Rabinovich and uh, and colleagues are uh, are studying the secondhand exposure also, um, as a, as they're studying uh, you know uh, pollution, air pollution. Uh, and now, just recently, there's being described. We just went to this Institute of Cannabis Research sponsored by Colorado State University uh, uh, um, in the state of Colorado in Pueblo, uh, third-hand exposure, going into uh, laboratories, going into workplaces, going into uh, homes where um, marijuana cannabis has been used, but that's not, uh, not presently uh, for second-hand exposure, just going into those environments you can have third-hand exposure to it's just like cat and dog dander, right? When you go into a room that uh, that the cat had been in, and you get the, you get reactions, uh, it's because there's a second and, and third-hand ex- exposure to it. So, uh, so I think that firstly, in the evaluation, is the history of uh, not only the person but the environment. Secondly, what we did, quite frankly, is just do a uh, uh, a skin test, you know, with uh, with the raw uh, substance. With uh, uh, had the patients bring in the marijuana, hopefully the uh, the grass from the dispensary where they got it, um, and uh, like the old mortar and pestle, the allergists used to do, uh, gets grounded up and made our own skin test and. Uh, have active and have controls, and so we tested patients uh, uh, themselves and 
and also staff in our office. And I got to tell you, it's very interesting. For example, we had some young uh, medical assistant students that were uh, uh, training in our office, and uh, and they lit up like lamps with the uh, skin <laughs> test skin test that we did. And fortunately, a number of our you know medical assistants and uh, and nurses, you know, were negative. And the patients, uh, you know, were positive or negative, depending. But we, you just, you can do your own skin test. Now, here's where it gets a little bit immunologically uh, challenging for the uh, for the allergists. Obviously, with a class one FDA, uh, uh, you know, federally illegal, um, we're not going to get any uh, commercially available extracts anytime soon. You can do a puddle test, you know, uh, that, uh, that uh, the patient, you know, can bring in their own, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and cannabis allergy, you know, has been mainly attributed to the CAN-S3 uh, segment, the, uh, the nonspecific lipid transfer protein uh, of cannabis sativa. Um, so you have to... Um, Look at both the. It's an interesting thing. They're they're developing and just for research use only uh, extracts for in vitro blood testing. But there's nothing available now. But but we know that it's an immunologic uh, uh, imperative. Do you recommend using a um, presumably non-sensitized control uh, when you do these um, sort of homemade skin tests, uh, just since we don't really understand the you know, false positives, negative things along those lines? David, absolutely. Uh, it's imperative uh, that you have your, uh, your positive and negative controls. Uh, your positive controls so that you know that, uh, that you're getting an immunologic reaction with your own extract. Uh, there is a protocol, Gordy Sussman in uh, in Toronto, and colleagues have, including colleagues from the uh, uh, from NIOSH, because the National Institutes of Occupational Safety and Health have been concerned about the occupational safety of uh, of workers uh, in the industry because of the increase in uh, in part allergic and uh, and respiratory reactions. So they have put together a protocol that has been published for how to put an extract together. But without getting into the details, because it's not a standardized, it's just their suggestion. You know, you have to have a positive and negative control to know that you're doing a good uh, skin test, just like a fresh food extract. Um, so yeah, so the, the technique is is, uh, is important. And without positive and negative controls, you may be seeing an irritant reaction, or you may not have the potency uh, of the extract uh, that you're putting together that you really need. Now, once you, you sort of go through the evaluation and you identify somebody who likely has a IgE hypersensitivity to marijuana as derivatives, do those patients need to strictly avoid exposure? Are there other treatments that they can um, try first? And you know, I can only imagine that a lot of folks would be resistant to strict avoidance. So, any any recommendations on how to talk to those individuals? I have to tell you, David, I'm smiling because uh, how to approach this in terms of uh, uh, assessment and, uh, and and recommendations and patient education is part of the art uh, given the, uh, given the science that we have. So now uh, environmental avoidance is a natural response. But for those that are, as you say, uh, resistant to the suggestion of avoidance, you know, um, perhaps suggestions as vaping, uh, 
maybe better than smoking, but not necessarily healthier. Perhaps the newer, now available uh, sublingual sprays, uh, oils, uh, um, maybe. I know that, for example, in Israel, where medical marijuana was first legalized in the early 1990s because they found that the AIDS patients who were smoking grass were healthier and had greater longevity, uh, better qualities of life than those who weren't smoking grass. Why? Because it stimulated the appetite. Maybe it had uh, other effects. And so um, they now um, have medical marijuana both inhaled uh, and by oil. Um, and it's a patient preference. Um, I can. I think that the um, well, there may be a, a, a role for inhaled because allergists, pulmonologists uh, um, need to be especially careful with that. The oils may be the way to go. But the, but the inhaled has a faster onset of action. So, uh, so there are, uh, you know, um, allergic reactions and the avoidance or the minimization is important. But also the newer forms of delivery, patients just have to kind of experiment. But again, it's uh, it's the the theme that is now being uh, given in all the literature uh, in the states that are it's legal. You start low and you increase slow. You start low and you go slow, and then you treat the patients as uh, we treat any other allergic reactivity. This whole conversation is really you know filled with this theme of individualized approaches, open conversations, shared medical decision-making, understanding of education, risks, and benefits. And I think more than anything that this, this whole topic really, uh, that all those things need to be taken into consideration. The harms and benefits uh, relationship, uh, the safety efficacy uh, is, uh, is um, ultimately important for us as physicians and for us to impress uh, upon the patients, but also to need to be very sensitive to the patient's personality, uh, their needs, their wishes, and uh, and to see what might be available, you know, um, that the patients can follow up with you. You're absolutely right. This is where the art and science of, uh, of medicine, of being a, a good, holistic, uh, compassionate physician, um, you know, is uh, front and center. Yeah. Well, as we wind down to the end of our conversation here today, I'd like to touch upon CBD oil. Uh, as you know, this is one of the most popular trends that we're seeing, and it's being marketed as a treatment for just about every type of symptom or, me or medical condition that you can imagine. Can you discuss any evidence that demonstrates benefit of using CBD oil specifically for asthma or allergic conditions? Uh, in a in a word, no, not well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, the world... The world of CBD is blown up. You know, you've got uh, CBD putting, being put in all kinds of foods uh, as a marketing stunt. Uh, the growth of CBD-infused products is undeniable. Uh, Colorado, as an example, is a microbrew capital also. We've got the Great American Beer Fest, and several years ago, there was a can of beer that had, uh, that had CBD. It's uh, showing up in drinks, salves, uh, touted as the next best thing, but it's really just too early to know the true medical impact. And one of the factors is dosing. How much is a therapeutic dose? Is it five milligrams, 500 milligrams, 1,000 milligrams? 
And there's no regulation on the testing of the CBD products now. It's not only the Wild West, but it's the Wild East, North, and South. Um, so I think the best advice is to be an informed consumer, do homework on the products uh, that you may be purchasing, and to assure that there's a certificate of analysis that it's been independently tested by a state-regulated lab. That's, uh, that's important. What about any risks that have been recognized from using CBD oil for somebody who has asthma or allergic conditions? You know, we're doing a study here on dermatitis because uh, there's a lot of uh, of literature in this area in terms of the lotions and oils and salves that are being being produced uh, and reactions to it. So um, we know that from patient histories that there is a uh, uh, a risk and an adverse reaction. We just don't know the nature and why. And, and how much, et cetera. It's, it's all open right now. Okay. Well, you know, as we kind of wind things down, I have one final question for you, if that's okay, and then uh, I'll allow you to, obviously, any comments you'd like to um, convey. But um, this was a fascinating conversation, complicated, and I'm sure this is going to evolve over the next several years as well. But as we see legalization and use becoming more widespread, do you have any talking points or anticipatory guidance that you can lend to allergists and other physicians when they discuss this topic with their patients? Well, number one, I appreciate your invitation to speak on this uh, because I think that uh, 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 it's important to be open to uh, to what's happening in our society and to uh, uh, to address that. The history, you know, with our patients, you, you know, you've got to ask. We know from a previous Academy survey led by David Naimi that was published that allergists are excellent at asking their patients about smoking cigarettes. But do we ask our patients each time about any um, marijuana or cannabis use? Because uh, if we don't, I think that now we should. And not just personal use, but exposure to secondhand smoke and perhaps even thirdhand uh, exposure. Uh, and next is to recognize that marijuana is a weed, cannabis sativa, cannabis indica, which can act as an allergen like uh, like any other uh, tree, grass, or weed allergen. And in addition to the pollen, the IgE known reactivity, which is why you have skin test positivity. There may be other factors. There may be IgE negative, but it may be the molds or pesticides. I think that another point that's very important for allergists to know is the cross-reactivity with foods. Um, we know that there's a pollen food cross-reactivity, ragweed, uh, chamomile, melons, etc. Um, and you also, it has been described, a cannabis fruit vegetable uh, syndrome. Not only is it the BET V1, uh, as in uh, oral allergy syndrome with birch, uh, tree pollen, and certain foods, but now there's a group, especially from Belgium, Didier Ebo and his colleagues, that has identified a nonspecific lipid transfer protein seen in certain fruits and vegetables, including pitted uh, fruits uh, like peaches, what they call stoned fruits, so to speak. Uh, not to be too humorous about it, that cross-reacts, that cross-reacts, and seriously, they, they, they published this, uh, that cross-reacts with the cannabis flower itself. So we may be seeing more cross-reactivity with foods uh, as we do, with, uh, you know, and pollen as we do with, uh, with latex and foods like kiwi and bananas. And that's part of the reason that we started this cannabis allergy discussion group uh, with the allergy community and at the academy uh, to address this. And our experiences, uh, you know, uh, in North America as well as internationally, 
Um, and, uh, you know, just to go back, David, I just think that it's important to recognize the history of the development of this. Cannabis has been in the literature for thousands of years, 5,000 years ago in China, 3,000 years ago in, in uh, the Middle East, Persia, and Egypt as a treatment for headaches, arthritis, menstrual periods. And that's why the Israeli plant biologists in the 60s, Raphael Meshulam, started studying the plant, uh, Cannabaceae, getting it from police busts, you know. And he first identified Delta-9 THC in 1964. And he, in fact, is in his 80s now and is still at the Hadassah School of Pharmacy every day. And his laboratory is studying the endocannabinoid system, which is a natural system in our bodies. We have CB1, cannabinoid 1, cannabinoid 2 receptors. So it's a natural chemical. And, uh, in fact, cannabis was in the U.S. pharmacopoeia uh, in the early 1900s. uh, produced by pharmaceutical companies like Lilly and Merck until 1937 with the Marijuana Tax Act when the government made it illegal. So we know that, that it's been in the, uh, the ancient literature. We know that patients you know, get better, um, how and why, etc. We don't know yet, but now is the time that uh, this uh, bench research uh, that the plant biologists and chemists have been doing um, can be translated to, to the bedside. Uh, I kind of call it uh, pharma meets weed, you know, for uh, benefit, harm, safety, efficacy for our patients' benefits. And I think that medical cannabis, medical marijuana can develop from a complementary add-on to a pharmaceutical with uh, uh, our openness and, uh, and, and good pharmaceutical research and societal and governmental acceptance of it. And people like yourself who are doing podcasts, you know, for educating our own uh, allergy community, of which I'm very appreciative. Oh, I, thank you. I, I really can't thank you enough for being with us today. It's a, it's a captivating story, uh, one that has not been completed as of yet, and I, for one, am interested to see what the next chapter brings us. And uh, thank you again. This is extremely helpful. I learned a lot by talking with you, and uh, I look forward to having you back on in the future as we learn more about this. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add? David, I thank you and the Academy for uh all of your educational efforts and for bringing uh, the older guys like myself into the world of social media. (laughs) Was this your first podcast as a guest? Yes, absolutely. Well, I, podcast I, as a guest or or, or as uh, as any part of a podcast. <laughs> wow, I'm I'm honored, and uh, you nailed it. So thank you. <laughs> All right, David. Thank you very much, and Laura. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through iTunes or Google Play, so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.